The federal probe into Donald Trump expands into Georgia. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm political insider Greg Bluestein. Patricia Murphy is taking a well-deserved break this week. But we're joined by Tamar Hallerman, AJC senior super reporter. Tamar, thanks so much for joining us. Always love to be here, Greg. Well, coming up on today's episode, we're going to talk with Tamar about the expanding federal probe into Trump's actions here in Georgia and how that overlaps with the Georgia investigation. Also, what it means for Fannie Willis's ongoing probe, which could reach a conclusion. Feels like any moment now, doesn't it, Tamar? <laughs> yeah, it really could be any day. We're also going to talk about why the feds are seeking state farm video footage, why they're scrutinizing a Mark Meadows text about his son involving the Georgia election, and a deeper look into campaign fundraising. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. One of the best ways to view the ongoing federal and state investigations into former President Donald Trump might be as a Venn diagram because there's so much overlap between the probes by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and Justice Department officials. Tamar, we've seen firsthand examples of that the last few days. You broke the story that Special Counsel Jack Smith subpoenaed footage of the vote counting process at State Farm Arena. His office also contacted Governor Brian Kemp, who is a witness in the Willis probe, and federal investigators are now scrutinizing a text from Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, joking about the baseless claim of widespread voting fraud before backing it up publicly. Tamar, this doesn't seem like a new trend, but there is significant developments with this overlap right now. Yeah, that Venn diagram seems to be growing by the day, at least that part of the center um, where there are overlapping interests. We've known for a long time, of course, that Jack Smith and his prosecutors uh, have been interested in the slate of alternate Republican electors who were appointed and cast votes for, for Donald Trump in swing states won by Joe Biden. And we've known for a while now that he wanted to talk to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. But the, the development with Governor Kemp is new. And of course, figuring out that they also wanted surveillance footage from, from State Farm Marina. And it presents some interesting strategy questions for both sets of prosecutors in Washington and in Fulton County. Are they both going to be going after the same people using mm -hmm. federal and state laws? Will one bow to the other, <laughs> let let the other go first mm -hmm. or, or be the one to, to do it? What happens? And the thing is, there's no like central air traffic controller who can say, okay, feds, you can do this before Fulton does it or, or Fulton, you need to step aside. There's no one who says, hey, the feds typically go first or, or state prosecutors tend to go first. So really, it's up to the prosecutors themselves to decide if they want to talk to one another and coordinate in any way or if they're going to both do their own thing. And it certainly seems at the moment, based on the public signals that I've been watching for closely, it seems like both sides are kind of doing their own thing. They're doing their own thing. And, and it's interesting because how do the feds launch an investigation to Donald Trump's actions in 2020 without incorporating much of what happened in Georgia? Because it was 
the pillar, right? It, it was the focus of so much of the election misinformation, the election fraud lies, the attempts to overturn his defeat, Brad Raffensperger's phone call, all that. All these elements that you've been reporting as as pillars of Fonnie Willis's investigation, well, they're also probably going to be cornerstones of the federal investigation. Exactly. Especially when we're talking about the events at State Farm Arena in Atlanta, where very much the center of conspiracy theories that you heard from uh, supporters of Donald Trump, who said that surveillance photos from their surveillance video showed what they saw as, as smoking gun evidence of, mm-hmm. of fraud, as Rudy Giuliani liked to say. And there's just so many examples where, where Georgia was the most prominent example, as you mentioned, that leaked phone call between uh, Donald Trump and Brad Raffensperger. Um, where else do you have leaked audio of these phone calls between the former president and these state officials? Georgia just provides so much of a wealth of evidence for prosecutors. I think it's hard to not go here. Let's talk about that State Farm video because you scooped the news that Jack Smith's team subpoenaed that footage. We've seen the footage. A lot of our listeners have seen the footage. I'm particularly interested in this because this footage became an obsession of pro-Trump conspiracy theories after Rudy Giuliani showed snippets of it to allege there was some sort of fraud. Multiple reviews have showed no such thing. Republican leaders in Georgia have said there is no evidence of any widespread fraud. But these lies led to death threats against two of the election staffers in the videos, forcing them into hiding. They put a very personal face on the consequences of these falsehoods as well. So I understand it from a political perspective, but what's the legal perspective of potentially using this to build evidence against Donald Trump and his allies? There's a couple different ways that this can be done. The first is is where and how this was initially presented. Rudy Giuliani presented this information to a panel of lawmakers in the state Senate in Georgia in December 2020. He actually ended up uh, testifying three different times in front of Georgia lawmakers that month. But as he meant, as I mentioned earlier, he mentions a, a smoking gun of, of fraud. He talks about these suitcases full of ballots that he alleges. He um, brings up these two poll workers, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Shay Moss. He made it seem like they were doing something nefarious. He, he mentioned something along the lines of, look at them scurrying around like they're selling dope, um, counting illegal ballots for, for Joe Biden. And by the um, way, they were passing each other a ginger mint. Exactly. Right? And that was revealed during the January 6th committee hearing. So there's, first of all, the conspiracy theories and falsehoods that Rudy Giuliani and many of his deputies were telling state lawmakers during these these hearings. There's, of course, the fact that after that hearing, we had the FBI, we had the Justice Department, we had the Georgia Secretary of State's office and others who looked into this, found no evidence of fraud. And yet, despite that, weeks later, Donald Trump and others were still reciting some of those same lies about what went on in State Farm. And then finally, you have all of the the pressure and harassment that these poll workers, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, were getting at their homes. I mean, Ruby Freeman had at least two different sets of people. One was a pastor from Illinois, and another was a publicist who had worked for R. Kelly and, and Kanye West, who showed up at her door and basically said, we're here to help you. But by the way, there's all these bad people who want to hurt you, and you need to confess to committing election fraud or else you and your family could get hurt. So there's all sorts of different threads that could be pulled when it comes to State Farm. Tamara, you also reported that we'll likely have to wait a little bit longer to review the recommendations issued by the special grand jury. 
Yeah. And this is the investigative body that spent eight months helping D.A. Willis compile evidence and interview some 75 witnesses um, connected to her investigation. Now, at the end of their service, they issued a set of recommendations for who they believe should be indicted. And the forewoman, Emily Kors, during interviews with my colleague and I on Breakdown and with other news organizations heavily suggested they recommended that Donald Trump be indicted, as well as a slew of others. We've been waiting to see what else is in that report. Back in February, the judge overseeing the case, Robert McBurney, said he would release part of it, which he did. Um, But there was very little. All the good stuff had been redacted and sealed Um, the DA had asked for more time and basically said, give me until I've figured out my indictment decisions before this gets released publicly. The judge agreed with that, but a bunch of media organizations, including the AJC, appealed that ruling, arguing that it was in the public interest for these recommendations to be made public and that these recommendations were a court document that by their nature are public and should be released Uh, It's unclear whether we'll hear from the appeals court before indictment and announcements from the DA, because that could really come in the next couple weeks. Um, But it still is interesting to see that there's all these side battles being fought surrounding the, the Fulton DA's investigation. This is just a reminder of all those side battles that are to come to after the indictments, if we, if we see them in the next few weeks, because we were talking earlier about the overlap between the feds and the local investigation. Well, one of the first filings we expect, right, is is a filing to remove the Fulton County case to federal court. So I don't even know how that would work or how that would interfere or, or coordinate or uh, coincide with the Justice Department case. But that just adds another wrinkle to all this. Exactly. And it could drag things out even longer before somebody could end up in um, at the trial phase. But this is something that Donald Trump, we're expecting him to to pull this move if he is indeed indicted, as the DA has heavily suggested she will. Um, and a little bit about federal removal. It basically is a protection for a government worker. If, if they were carrying out a duty as part of their job and they're being questioned for it in court, they can try and move the proceedings from state to federal court. As I've interviewed legal experts about this question, many folks have told me it's a pretty low bar. Uh, Trump should be able to get this move to, to federal court. Others aren't exactly so sure. They mention in his phone call to Brad Raffensperger, um, there was nothing about that phone call that was in line with what a president should be doing. That was more of what a political candidate would be doing. But there's still some some debate about that. Of course, Fonnie Willis would still be the one prosecuting this case, even if it ends up in federal court, but it would really draw things out. Now, on the same topic about Fonnie Willis and her office and its resources, there's been a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of scrutiny about the federal resources being spent on the Justice Department case. But, you know, of course, that's also turned the, the spotlight on Fonnie Willis. From what we understand, even though the investigation's taken about two years, it, it's involved a relatively small number of full-time employees, about 10 of her office's 370 staffers. That includes prosecutors, investigators, legal assistants, and the like. And obviously, we're still seeing other major investigations underway here, including the high-profile gang and racketeering case focusing on Atlanta rap groups. So that doesn't mean the criticisms go away. But when we talk about removing the federal court and we talk about uh, the resources that Fulton County's taxpayers are financing here, um, as big of this case is, that's not taking a huge chunk of the Fulton County office, right? 
Yeah, it doesn't seem to at this point, although it's certainly taken up the lion's share of the attention and, yes. and oxygen surrounding all of this. And who knows? It's it's likely the sort of thing, if the DA decides she does want to indict the former president, her people will likely expand. When it does come to talking about their budget, it is important to, to pause and talk about this. When she first launched her investigation some two and a half years ago, allies of her who had voted with her or who had worked with her on different legal cases who mentioned they didn't really necessarily see this as the smartest use of limited county taxpayer resources, especially at a time when there was a huge surge in violent crime in cities like Atlanta, when there was a giant backlog of cases due to the COVID-19 pandemic, a backlog they're still working their way through, by the way. Um, is this really the best use of of the DA's time and money, especially if the Justice Department is going over the same ground? And that's a question that I think the DA will have to continue to argue, especially since she's running for re-election next year. Tomorrow, speaking of questions, the question you probably get more than anyone else I know. I certainly get a lot, but I can't imagine how often you get it. Is this case still on track? Do we still expect an announcement within the next few weeks? It certainly seems like that. Every indication that we've gotten out of the DA's office so far is that they're they're battening down the hatches and that we're likely to uh, to get something in the coming weeks. Um, initially, she had flagged a window of some time between July 31st and August 18th. She indicated those were the most likely days. She told uh, court officials that she was sending most of her staff to work from home, something like 70%, and urging them to keep business in the courthouse light. That is certainly not something you are going to send unless you plan on indicting a former U.S. president. We will keep you informed. Still to come, how Donald Trump is faring in Georgia through the lens of his fundraising. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the AJC. Your host, Greg Bluestein. Patricia Murphy is on a well-deserved break, but we're also here with Tamar Hallerman, AJC senior, senior enterprise reporter, senior political reporter. What's your title? Just regular senior reporter. Regular senior, senior, insert whatever you want, reporter. Senior reporter at the age of 25. No. Um, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> You know what else Tamar Hallerman is? Not only is she a senior reporter with AJC, she's also a former author of the Morning Jolt newsletter, a, a rare and exclusive club, an elite club, I would say, which still is continuing because we write it every morning. We feel like it sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you, dear listener, can get it in your inbox every morning. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join our community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. You get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. 
That's subscribe at ajc.com slash podcast so you always know what's really going on. And tomorrow, while we have you, I think we can delve into a story that I'm finishing right now about Donald Trump's fundraising. Just as he leads the polls in Georgia, Trump also dominates the early race for campaign cash in the state. He's raised more than $826,000 from Georgia donors, but, and there's a, there's a but here, but an analysis of campaign finance reports and interviews I did with donors across Georgia, they point to some of Trump's vulnerabilities in a state that has challenged him like no other. In particular, Tamar, about half of Georgia donors who opened their wallets to Republican hopefuls gave to Trump's rivals. So again, even though he has double-digit leads in the state, even though he is in the poll position right now, even though he's the front-runner in the Republican primary, uh, there's still, as we've seen in polls, as we've seen in anecdotal interviews, and as now we've seen these fundraising numbers, there's still a significant block of Republican voters who are choosing anyone but him. Yeah, that certainly is interesting. A couple factors, and I'm curious to see what you found as you talked to some of these donors, but a couple factors. I mean, we're still just starting to to kick off the Republican primary season, and there's so many different Republican candidates out there who are vying to to uh, challenge the former president and really give him a run for his money, or even just make it onto the the debate stage in the in the weeks ahead. I wonder if at this very early stage in the campaign cycle, if there are folks who are just kind of waiting to see who emerges as the main challenger to Donald Trump. Um, or maybe there are people who might donate to him at the end of the day, but who aren't quite ready to. They see it as too early. Mm-hmm. Maybe they haven't tuned in. Maybe they want the race to settle a little bit. Yeah, I've seen it's interesting because you're right. There's some who are hedging, hedging their bets. They're giving to multiple candidates. There's some who are staying on the sidelines because uh, they're not sure who to support right now. There are some who are giving strategically. I talked to one donor in Peachtree City who compared Chris Christie's prospects of winning the White House to a, quote, snowball's chance of surviving an Albany, Georgia summer day. But yet, tomorrow, he still gave a $250 check to the former New Jersey governor. And why? He wanted Chris Christie to make it onto the debate stage. He felt like Christie knows Trump better than any other candidate in the running except for maybe the former VP. And he felt like that he could expose Trump's vulnerabilities on national TV before everyone. And there was a, why is he giving $250 for that? Because you have to reach a certain threshold. You have to get 40,000 unique donors in order to make it onto that debate stage on August 23rd. So he was giving Chris Christie just one more inch towards getting to that threshold. And you're seeing messaging like that from some of those Republican candidates who haven't made it yet. Uh, donate to me so that I can make it onto the the big stage to, to give me a chance to go toe-to-toe against Trump. Um, I mean, we tend to see the circling of the wagons, of course, uh, in the summer before a presidential election, once we have the nominee and it becomes clear who their their other major party opponent is going to be. So it's a little early, I think, to draw conclusions, but it certainly is interesting that at this point, given just how commanding a lead Trump has, that he doesn't have more of a lead in fundraising here in Georgia. Yeah. And, you know, what was another surprise is, yes, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is number two in most polls that we've seen, not just in Georgia, but around the nation. But the runner-up to Donald Trump in Georgia in terms of fundraising was not Ron DeSantis. It was former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, who collected nearly $464,000. It might be because she's from neighboring South Carolina, right, right across the state line. 
Uh, it might be because she has some high-profile supporters here herself, including Eric Tenenblatt, who has hosted fundraisers for her. He is a very well-connected Republican lobbyist with deep, deep roots in the GOP fundraising base. And the folks who I talked to who donated to Nikki Haley, they're not doing it because they just want her on the campaign stage. They feel like she has a legitimate shot still, even though she's in single digits in most polls, they feel like she has a legitimate shot at surprising and upending the Republican order right now and somehow beating Donald Trump and DeSantis. And something I would like to see as we move forward is, is there a consensus candidate, particularly among those more traditional Republicans that we see in the suburbs? Um, Eric Tannenblatt, who you mentioned, who we've both done many radio shows with Greg, um, you know, he he's very clued in with a lot of those more establishment Republicans. I don't know if he'd use that term, but do they all circle their wagons around one specific candidate? Is it Nikki Haley? Could it be Tim Scott? Um, does it eventually become Ron DeSantis? Or is the field just so scattered that none of those other candidates can emerge as as that more traditional Republican candidate, especially somebody who can appeal to that uh, very famous trope now of the, the suburban women, which we've written <laughs> many stories about <laughs> you and I, Greg, <laughs> um, in the North Atlanta suburbs. But is there one or is the field fractured? And meanwhile, DeSantis continues to shake up his campaign. This week, we learned of even more campaign firings he did. He's spending too much money too early, even though he has a significant amount of money. He's raised $20 million or so dollars. So he is not cash strapped, but he burned through so much of that cash early. And one problem, according to the records uh, here in Georgia, but also nationally, is that a lot of the contributions he's been getting are from donors who already have maxed out. They've already given the limit the maximum for primaries. So he can't go back and tap those. Relatively few of his donations are from small dollar donors who gave less than $200. That is an area where Donald Trump has thrived. I talked to one uh, contributor to his campaign who seems exhausted. She said I, she gets 10 to 15 text messages a day from his campaign. And each, and not each time, but every so often she'll give five bucks, seven bucks, $10 here and there. It has combined to more than $361 from her because she's given so many different times, but she gave 38 or so different times. So she says she just wants the text messages to stop. They, of course, haven't stopped, but that tactic works, right? It helps you get to these small dollar donors. And the emails too that that people receive with really um, apocalyptic subject lines, I get a million of them a day too from every campaign. This is just the the world we're living in. And I think especially once the campaign realized that they could appeal to those small dollar donors, the folks who can donate five, ten dollars a time, that still adds up to a lot. You mentioned Donald Trump, of course, who excelled in that. Also Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. on the left. And so that's a really potent thing. And and it's something certainly to watch, especially as we we try and see as this campaign moves on, who really is the candidate of the grassroots? Who Who's building up that energy? We're going to find out soon enough. Now, we here at Politically Georgia will not light up your phones with unsolicited text messages, but we will ask you to call us. Coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Producer Shaney B and his legion of interns is standing by. He actually had to hire another staffer, Kate, just to deal with the influx of calls. Kate is going to supervise our team of interns. 
Light up those phones for us. We're ready for you. We are ready. Well, thanks so much. for Kate, you can say something if you want, only if you want. I'm standing by the phones now. (laughs) There you go. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast, which I have to write very shortly. We'll release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,